Welcome to Left Out, reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM and podcasting on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. Left Out discusses the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced as ever by Matt Horniak. Uh, listeners are invited to call the program, as usual, uh, at 412-268-9728, or you can also send us electronic mail to uh, bob at leftout.info, and we'll monitor that during the show. Um, Danny? So we have a couple of announcements today. First one is there's going to be a workshop on media and democracy. It's uh, organized by the Prometheus Radio Project out of Philadelphia. And uh, the uh, workshop is... Um, it's going to be Thursday at 7.30 p.m., it's August 10th, uh, on the Carnegie Mellon campus in Baker Hall. Um, and um, what the, the topics to dis- be discussed are uh, free community Wi-Fi and how to set it up, low-power FM and how to set that up, the future of the Internet, and the FCC and deregulation of b- big media, and lots of legal issues involved as well as technical issues. Uh, Prometheus Radio is famous for setting up hundreds of, of uh, low-power FM stations across the country. So it should be an interesting mm-hmm. workshop uh, this Thursday at 7.30 p.m. on the CMU campus. If you go to the leftout.info webpage, there's all the details of exactly where it is, as well as links to the uh, Prometheus Radio project. Uh, coming up also uh, in about a week and a half, uh, the movie Who Killed the Electric Car is going to be showing in Pittsburgh. Uh, it's a movie about what happened to the electric car. We talked about this a little bit last, um, at the, la- the end of the last program, and it's about the electric car, uh, how good it was, um, its characteristics, and why we don't have the electric car anymore. Uh, right now, we can p- play the uh, trailer of the movie, last couple of minutes, to give you an idea of what the movie is about. Uh, it's, anyway, it's going to be playing at the Manor Theater in Squirrel Hill. So here's the, uh, the trailer for Who Killed the Electric Car. In 1996, electric cars began to appear on roads all over California. They were quiet and fast, produced no exhaust, and ran without gasoline. Ten years later, these futuristic cars were almost entirely gone. What happened? Why should we be haunted by the ghost of the electric car? The exciting thing about this is the cost of operating the car is the same as if you were driving a typical gasoline car, but the gasoline only costs 60 cents a gallon. I plug it in at night, and when I need to drive it, I unplug and drive it away. Believe it or not, that sucker goes. That thing will take you so fast you can get a ticket. Wow, I didn't know this existed. How come I don't know about this? Have you seen this on TV? People who control the marketplace today, the oil companies, have a strong incentive to discourage alternatives. They make too much money with their technological stagnation and the internal combustion engine. For the last 15 years, they've been telling us the fuel cells are 10 to 15 years old. There's still roughly a trillion barrels worth of oil in the Earth's crust. That's a hundred trillion dollars worth of business yet to be done. General Motors made a commitment to the Hummer because they could see the Hummer would make them money. The electric vehicle is not for everybody. It can only meet the needs of 90% of the population. We're up against the automobile industry, the oil industry. It's David versus Goliath. Who killed the electric car? Lack of corporate wisdom. Uh, in my opinion, it's, it's big oil. The murder was committed by the General Motors company. What's interesting, you're going to be shredding some new cars. Why are you shredding them up? A little bit of a mystery, really. Well, that seems like a shame. 
I think it will go down as one of the biggest blunders in the history of the automotive industry. So that was the trailer for Who Killed the Electric Car, which, as I said, is going to be showing August 18th at the Manor Theater in Squirrel Hill, the intersection of Murray and Darlington. Uh, just to refresh you, this is in case you just tuned in, this is left out on WRCT. If you'd like to give us a call uh, anytime during the show, you can give us a call at 412-268-9728. So we'll have a guest uh, in about five minutes' time, so meanwhile we can uh, discuss anything you'd like. I have a few items here that you might uh, find of interest. One I picked up on uh, Bill Mon's Whiskey Bar, a frequent source of uh, amusing little items that I find uh, find on the web I recommend to everyone. Uh, these are two quotes. Uh, we can play. Uh, we can play. Uh, guess the speaker. So here's uh, here's quote quotation number one. Your answer has to be in the form of a question. Until civilians, <clears throat> frankly, I'm not sure how many of them are actually just innocent little civilians running around versus active Hezbo types, particularly the men. But until those civilians start paying a price for propping up these kinds of regimes, not going to end, folks. What do you mean civilians start paying a price? I just ask you to consult history for the answer to that. That's uh, quote number one. Quote number two, we declared jihad against the U.S. government because the U.S. government is unjust, criminal, and tyrannical. It has committed acts that are extremely unjust, hideous, and criminal. And as, as for what you asked regarding the American people, they are not exonerated from responsibility because they chose this government and voted for it despite the knowledge of its crimes in Palestine, Palestine Lebanon, Iraq, and other places. So that's the end of quote number two. Would you like to guess as to who who are the uh, who are the speakers? Who are these two quotes? Uh, and, well, I can uh, I can guess, but, I won't, but I'm looking at you're the looking web, at the, the, the web page, which has the, on the No fair looking at the web page. Quotation number one, which was uh, justifying the uh, killing of civilians uh, by a military attack on the grounds that they're well, that's just the way it goes, is uh, none other than the uh, the fabulous spokesman for the right wing in the United States, Rush Limbaugh, on July 31st, commenting on the Kano massacre in Lebanon. Quote number two uh, was from the infamous and despicable Osama bin Laden uh, declaring his fatwa against the uh, America in March of 1997, quite a few years ago, and again justifying uh, the attacks on criminals in the name of their cause. So uh, interesting, interesting observation parallel of the convergence. Those, the parallel between the two things. It's often been said that uh, that uh, that there's uh, more similarities between our neocon government and Osama bin Laden than uh, than there is between bin Laden and the, the rest of the civilized world. But uh, it, uh, that's uh, an interesting, interesting item from Billman uh, on uh, Billman's Whiskey Bar. Another thing that came up that you might find uh, interesting and possibly provocative is, uh, uh, is, a, uh, is an item from uh, Glenn Greenwald, who is uh, treating us to some remembrance of things past. Uh, and you might want to have a look at this. And the, uh, the, the, what it, what it, we have this linked uh, on the Left Out website. It's a bit uh, of a trip down memory lane, uh, quoting, uh, quoting from a speech in February 17th, 2003, uh, given by none other than Howard Dean, who was roundly and thoroughly vilified for his, uh, his positions and his critique of the invasion of the Iraq war. You'll recall the invasion of Iraq. He's, you'll recall he's one of the few prominent national politicians who had the guts to actually question uh, the wisdom of this. And um, and uh, of this invasion, and when he was when he did question it, well, uh, you 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 all I think all of our listeners know quite well uh, how he was treated and how any form of dissent of any kind, even innocuous.
innocuous remarks like these, which turned out to be quite prescient, um, were made. They were just completely unacceptable. So one is, um, yeah, I'll just pick a few uh, few items. The, the full quotation is on the left.info webpage. Um, this one is, for example, Howard Dean said, and this is in 2003, the administration has not explained how a lasting peace and lasting security will be achieved in Iraq once Saddam Hussein is toppled. Uh, that's a very interesting remark. We have been told little about what the risk will be if we go to war. Okay, uh, we've been told that uh, you know how everything is uh, uh, that that the uh, that that everything was going to go swimmingly, and we'll be greeted with uh, we'll be greeted with uh, showered with rose petals, uh, greeting us uh, in jubilation as we invade their country. Uh, and as Howard Dean pointed out at that time, uh, the events could go differently than that. And he said, and I'll quote: uh, "Iraq is a divided country. The Sunni, Shia, and Kurdish factions share both bitter rival- rivalries and access to large quantities of arms." Now, if you see that, uh, that's, uh, uh, think about that quotation. That's fine. Now, for many of us at that time, that was just a common sense observation that even non-experts such as myself, it was pretty evident to, to me and to many other people that that was a significant mm-hmm. threat. Howard Dean was able to see that. However, Paul Wolfowitz, Wolfowitz of Arabia, the, 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 brilliant, uh, the brilliant military strategist who was uh, behind the invasion to Iraq, testified uh, to Congress that, uh, and I'll quote you, that Iraq has no history of sectarian violence. This was in the run-up to the Iraq War, so um, I've been accused of uh, 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 criticized for making this kind of statement before, but I'll I, I'll, I'll do it anyway. Um, so, which is it? Is is Wolfowitz like a grotesquely incompetent or a pathological liar? Take your choice. Um, it's uh, one or the other. And here and here here we have Howard Dean, who was you know as I said uh, was completely uh, vilified. Right, he was wrongly criticized press. for for every at every turn for making statements like uh, Iraq is a divided country could easily degenerate into civil war, that the administration has no plan for the follow-up to Iraq, and so on and so on. Uh, uh, of course, all of these things are old news, Danny. I don't know why we obsess on these old news. I mean, who who, who cares about these? Old, it's, all, it's all old hat, right? We're, aren't we over the Iraq syndrome? We should just uh, we're not, no, no, not worry about the, But, but if you read the rest of this column <clears throat> that by Greenwald, there's a very interesting uh, thing at the very end. We're talking about the fact that if you look at the set of people who were right and the set of people who were wrong, the people who were wrong in almost every way grow 180 degrees wrong in s- making these decisions are now the ones who are um, still being quoted. They're still running still around lecturing us about the right thing to do and how dumb and frivolous like and unprincipled. Like William Crystal, for example. Right. William Crystal, <laughs> Peter Beinart, uh, uh, just all the same people. All these same people who were completely wrong, uh, Thomas Friedman. Um, all the way down the line. All the way down the line. They're still Those out the there, experts. and they're still in the, the ones who are who, who are getting all the press and all the publicity and all the all the all the, the distribution. So. All right. So enough of that. Uh, so as as we said before, uh, listeners are welcome to call us at four one two six two one nine seven two eight or to send electronic mail to bob at leftout.info. Now we have a guest today, and we're very uh, very pleased, and I'm delighted to have as a guest today uh, Michelle Goldberg, who is calling in, who is a uh, senior political reporter from Salon.com, and she's been uh, a journalist covering matters of, uh, of politics and, and religious ide- ideology for quite a number of years, and she's written a new book which I read this weekend and enjoyed enormously. Uh, called Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism. And uh, Michelle Goldberg, I believe you're on the line. Uh, Welcome to Left Out. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for calling in. Um, it's really delightful to have a chance to talk with you. I wonder, for the sake of our readers, if we might start out, if you could uh, give us a brief uh, summary of uh, of the main main tenets of your book, and I'd like to uh, talk about a few specific points as well. Sure. 
I guess I should start by explaining what Christian nationalism is, Good. because the book is, you know, an exploration of this political phenomenon. And I think political is the operative word, because one of the cases that I make in the book is that what I'm talking about here is not just is not just evangelical Christianity or even fundamentalist Christianity. I mean, evangelicals make up somewhere around 30% of the population. I'm certainly not trying to tar all of them with the brush of Christian nationalism. Um, this is a specific political ideology. It has a revisionist history of America that claims that the founders intended to create a Christian nation. They never intended to separate church and state, and that, you know, kind of church-state separation has just been this gigantic fraud that has to be undone for the sake of, you know, the country's greatness. And so, you know, this revisionist history has led them to try in many different ways with various degrees of success to Christianize all of the institutions of government, you know, and so you see this cropping up in everything from the kind of school board battles over intelligent design to, um, you know, to the fact that we've sent various, um, you know, televangelists and right-wing, you know, Christian radio talk show hosts to be delegates to the United Nations where they work with Islamic regimes to try to curtail women's rights worldwide. So it's uh, so we can start with uh, one of those points, which is one that certainly has uh, galled me a number of times. Is this uh, ever? It seems to be ever increasing uh, claims that uh, the United States is a Christian country. As a matter of fact, um, uh, the Texas Republican Party just recently made it part of their party platform that the U.S. is a Christian nation, and that's the principles that they're going on. And you know, uh, to me, I mean, this this kind of a statement is just appalling and and uh, and, and inaccurate, and yet it's become. It's it's become a kind of a truth. Well, I think that, you know, one of the themes of my book, and you don't see this just with Christian nationalism, you see it with the whole, you know, with, with all of our politics, is that the very idea of truth has been somewhat degraded and undermined because you have kind of entire alternate realities being foisted on us by, you know, by various political players. You know, the same people who claim everything that's going, everything is going swimmingly in Iraq um, you know, also have this whole kind of architecture of falsity to back up their revisionist history of America. Um, one of the things I try to show is that there is this kind of entire, you know, I call it at one point a kind of a library of lies. You know, when I go to homeschooling conventions, say, you know, or various conferences or churches, and I did travel, I spent quite a bit of time, you know, traveling through this world for the book, you see, you know, just piles and piles of history books and textbooks and, you know, all presenting this kind of entirely fake version of history. And so you have people who are kind of incredibly deeply versed in really this whole, in this really parallel universe. And now what you're starting to see is that that parallel universe is kind of encroaching on the rest of us. Um, one of the most kind of prolific and popular of the Christian revisionist historians a guy named David Barton, who until recently was vice chairman of the Texas Republican Party, and you'll hear his books referenced all the time in this debate. And so the, one of the things that the book is about, besides being about kind of, you know, specific political issues and the specific way that this movement has impinged on people's lives, it's also about the way, you know, kind of truth itself has been, um, you know, kind of undermined, and this fictitious world has been created through various political institutions.
I'm trying. I'm trying to find. I, unfortunately, I lost my place. I'm trying to find a delicious quote of yours about uh, who's to say uh, the lines were who's to say uh, what's uh, what's what's true after you get to a certain point. Can you remember or remind me offhand yes, where that was? I can't find it at the second. Well, it's a I'll bit frustrating. I'll find it. I'll read it later. But I mean, okay. I think that it's really, really interesting because a lot of these, a lot of the people on the right. I mean, you probably you remember the. Um, you know, kind of the, the wars over PC and the, the academic wars in the yeah. 90s. Yes. When they would kind of, you know, get all hot and bothered about the idea of, you know, postmodern relativism. But these are really the ultimate postmodernists. Yes, Because yes. to them, truth is dependent on who has the power to enforce it. Right, and I think uh, that was a very good, a very, very good point that you made. Is actually how that how that comes about in the complete turnaround there is there about the, the, the from this point of view about what constitutes an absolute fact, what constitutes a fact, what what constitutes evidence, and whether faith is actually the only thing that matters. It's really uh, quite remarkable, even in matters of uh, you know political matter political policy. But going going back to this uh, idea, I thought you might pick up, which is um, the 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 idea that the America is a Christian nation. I mean, so w- what what kind of evidence did they provide for this? We hear it all the time, like the business with Roy Moore and his Ten Commandments. Uh, uh, someone once quipped, "Which Ten Commandments?" But anyway, some <laughs> some version of the Ten Commandments, and uh, and and this constant you know press to to impose Christian views. In fact, I've even seen some. Uh, you quoted some uh, r- rather shockingly anti-Semitic positions that basically say one of them is, uh, well, you know, Jews are only two or three percent of the population, and they don't have any right to impose their views on us. That kind of thing. I mean, it's outrageous what these things that are going on. Well, it's kind of. I mean, you know, some of some of what they rely on are, you know, various quotes by some mm-hmm. of the. You know, there was there was arguments over the. Um, you know, over the Constitution. And so sometimes, you know, they'll adopt some of, you know, they'll kind of quote some of the founders whose positions ultimately lost, you know, people like Patrick Henry. Or they will, one thing that David Barton specializes in is kind of combing through the words of the founders to find religious references and then to kind of use those in such a way as to argue that the founders meant religious, you know, views to be kind of authoritative. So he'll quote, you know, Thomas Jefferson's words, you know, I tremble, um, I'm I'm kind of mangling the quote, but, you know, Jefferson said, um, you know, I tremble when I think that, I tremble, I tremble when I realize that God is just. And he was speaking about the evils of slavery. He wasn't speaking about the kind of, you know, the fact that that Christian that Christianity should kind of govern our lawmaking, but that's one thing that's one thing that they rely on. But you know, I've heard some kind of amazing arguments, um, and they're often so amazing that it's a little bit hard to answer them. I can give you an example. Um, since the book came out, I've been invited to go on a number of Christian right-wing Christian radio shows, and I've done it occasionally. Mm-hmm. And on one of them, I was arguing with the host, and he said to me, um, I, "I don't remember exactly what we were talking about, but I said to him, do you think it's just a coincidence? Do you think it's just an accident that the founders don't mention God or Christianity anywhere in the Constitution if they intended this to be a Christian nation? And he said, are you saying there's no reference to God in the Constitution? And as soon as he said that, I actually knew what was coming because I'd heard this before. And he said, how is the Constitution signed? And, of course, a 
Constitution is signed in the year of our Lord, 1787. Now, in, oh, in, God. <laughs> so in the year of our Lord, this is a dating convention. And so he said to me, and you'll admit that, that the, by the Lord, they mean Jesus Christ. And, and that's true, you know, in terms of that's how we, that's, that's kind of how our dating system is. And so he said, so the Constitution says that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is the Constitution unconstitutional? Oh, my God. Is that, and, is that really? That was seriously offered as an argument. Um, yeah, and this is an argument. That wasn't the first time I had heard it. Wow, that's, t- that's totally amazing. So the, uh, we're talking to Michelle Goldberg, who's author of a new book called Kingdom Coming, the Rise of Christian Nationalism. You're welcome to call us in if you'd like to talk with Michelle. It's uh, 412-621-9728, or you can also send mail to bob at leftout.info. Now, one of the things that's interesting in your book is you're talking about the way in which the there are a number of actually a number of angles here, but one as I go through uh, chapter by chapter is the way in which the uh, the, the right wing and conservative so-called conservative uh, uh, wing of the Republican Party, religious conservative wing of the Republican Party, has kind of insinuated um, politics into uh, into churches, and for example, by using wedge issues like homophobia. And I wonder if you might pick that up. Yes, certainly. I mean, one of the things that I think makes this movement remarkable and that makes it different, say, than the first and second Great Awakening, you know, which were also times when you had, you know, these kind of upsurges in religious fervor and, you know, evangelical political activism, although in the past evangelical, evangelical political activism was often on the side of justice and human rights. But to me, the big difference is that this movement is so thoroughly aligned and enmeshed and intertwined with the political party, with the GOP. And so what you saw, for example, in Ohio in 2004 that was absolutely critical, I think, to Bush's election was that the thing that these wedge issues do, it's not just that they rile up the base, although they do that. They also give preachers who are so inclined a kind of ability to organize and to talk about politics in a way that they couldn't do if they were just talking about a candidate. Um, That's the thing thing I would like you to... uh, Yeah, under IRS rules, um, you can't endorse a candidate from the pulpit, and you can't, you know, endorse a party from the pulpit, but you can take to the pulpit and talk about a supposedly nonpartisan issue. And gay marriage is, is one of those nonpartisan issues, you know, as are abortion and things like that. So with issue one, which was the anti-gay ballot initiative in, in Ohio, um, and not just anti-gay marriage. I mean, it really strips gay people of a whole host of protections. But um, what issue one allowed in Ohio was that it let these kind of preachers like Rod Parsley and Russell Johnson and some of the others to, first of all, make all of their sermons kind of explicitly political. So when I would go to church in Ohio before the election, you know, and I went to a lot of these churches, you know, it would be the homosexuals from, you know, the first word to the last. <laughs> and then even more than that, it let, um, it, let the preach, it let them move a lot of the organizing inside the walls of the church. So you had the phone banking and the get out the vote drives and the petition drives and all this stuff was happening actually inside the church walls. You know, and that kind of gives the Republican Party a massive kind of ready-made infrastructure that there's just nothing um, on the other side that can equal it. Yes, it, it's a, it seems like, a, to be honest, it seems like, a, I have to say, an insidiously ingenious strategy that seems to have worked, uh, worked extremely well for the Republicans. 
So uh, one of the things I've I've heard about, and I don't, I didn't, I just heard about it maybe in Democracy Now! on some news program, but there are these things called mega churches, um, where apparently in a lot of the areas that are newly developed, uh, suburban areas where new houses have sprung up and there's nothing much there, there's no not much infrastructure for humans to live, which is a, the way our, our country is developed. Uh, there are these mega churches where the churches apparently uh, supply all of the uh, many of the needs of of, of, of the community. Um, yeah. they supply the, the recreational facilities and uh, places to, to the meeting rooms and the, the, I don't know what else they do. And so this becomes the center of the, the whole community surrounding the church. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the mega churches. Um, you know, mega churches only make up about one percent of congregations but they're growing really, really fast. One of the statistics I have in my book is that according to one expert on church growth, a new megachurch opens in America every two days. And what they, what they are, megachurches are generally defined as churches with more than 5,000 members. Um, they usually look much more like kind of shopping malls or movie theaters than like churches. Sometimes they're even housed in converted shopping malls or movie theaters. They're these kind of huge boxy buildings you know, the chapels usually look more like amphitheaters. They have light shows and rock bands, and it's kind of very, you know, they're often very, very sophisticated visually, and, you know, it's this kind of show. And, and in addition to that, they have, you know, coffee shops. You know, many, one of the things I think is funny is that liberals often get tarred as, you know, latte-drinking liberals. But megachurches actually sell, serve lattes in church, you know. You have a Starbucks in many, of the, in many of these churches, you know. Some of them have McDonald's. They have bowling alleys in some, you know, swimming pools, summer camp, you know, singles clubs, you know, gyms. And so basically, everything. If, you, if you want to be part of the community, you have to be in this church. That's the only thing to do, or that's, that's where everything is focused. Well, yeah, because they're right. I mean, the thing about these communities you know, and there are mega churches in older communities too, but it's really in the exurbs where they're kind of growing the fastest. And in these communities, you know, a lot of times it was farmland 15 years ago, so nobody's from there, nobody has roots there. There's no kind of, you know, no kind of organic community and very little public space. And so, you know, yeah, if you want, and so a lot of people I think do join these churches. Um, they start out, you know, just going to the gym, or they start out signing their kids up for after-school programs, and it becomes a kind of a whole social world. And, you know, I would say you can't really criticize anyone for doing that. You can't criticize the churches for doing that. They are, um, you know, serving a need that, right. you know, a kind of gaping need in American life. I think that from a progressive point of view, the problem is that this social world often comes with a really aggressive right-wing political ideology. So another another point, I finally found this uh, quote of yours I've, after thumbing through for a while, is uh, this: we're going back to this uh, attack on the truth and the, the, the uh, beautiful little uh, quote I saw from you, uh, if, I may, if, I may, if I may read it. It says, um, when, truth loses, when truth loses its meaning, all manner of deceptions can be fostered. How do we know the Founding Fathers didn't intend a theocracy? Who's to say there weren't weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? Can anyone prove there isn't a homosexual conspiracy? Would John Kerry a war hero or did he shoot himself? There are, there are two sides to every story. Right? Who are you going to believe, your pastor or the liberal media? So this is a perfect example, a uh, perfect example of what you were getting at earlier about the kind of, uh, kind of interesting relativism and uh, and faith-based uh, perspective that's being fostered here. And also, you related very much to Hannah Arendt's uh, premises about the origins of totalitarianism. I wonder if you could pick up on that. Sure. I 
you know, this is a really tricky thing to talk about because as soon as you start talking about Hannah Arendt, um, people assume that you are saying that there's going to be, you know, stormtroopers marching down the streets and we're all going to be, you know, shipped off to re-education camps in South Dakota or something like that. And that's that's absolutely not what I'm trying to argue. Um, But there are elements of this movement that I think can only really be explained um, with reference to kind of theories of proto-totalitarianism. So I mean that, like, totalitarianism when it's in its kind of early movement stage, you know, well before it gets to be taken, well before it takes power, when it's more kind of a, you know, a social and organizing phenomenon. And one of the things that Hannah Arendt writes about, you know, so kind of beautifully and powerfully in The Origins of Totalitarianism is the way these movements function by creating an entire parallel reality. And to me, that's kind of where the the most um, the most kind of striking similarities are that they construct a par- you know they construct this whole other reality with um, you know full of kind of menacing conspirators and you know heroic saviors of the nation and you know revisionist histories and it's you know she talks about how you know totalitarian movements are always marked by their extreme contempt for facts as such. And I don't see how anyone could read that line and not, um, you know, think about some of our current kind of political leaders. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, that issue, um, I've been, um, I, I, I um, heard an interview with a, uh, a writer, Stephen Kinzer, um, who wrote a book called Overthrow. It's a bit of a tangent, but I think it relates to what you just said. Um, so he, he's, a, I think, a former New York Times reporter who quit the Times to write this book. And, it's, and he also wrote a wonderful book about um, Iran, about the, the, the um, overthrow of the Mossadegh um, and the installation of the Shah. Well, I, I don't know. If you're, maybe you're speaking of the same. Well, the book I'm thinking of is called Overthrow, right. America's Century of Regime Change from Hawaii to Iraq where uh, it, it actually goes through all of the stories of, in which the U.S. became involved in overthrowing different governments, and um, many of them, when you l- learn the facts, are just outrageous what the U.S. has done. And the reason that this relates to what you just said is the rewrite, in my, in my thinking, it's a bigger picture, but the history we learn in schools, when you complain about the history that they're rewriting, that the, that the religious right... Is, is writing in these new history books and stuff, this alternate reality. Well, actually, the story that Kinzer's telling here is not the story you read in the, the kids reread in our history books in school, right? So we're getting a completely false uh, history. What we learn in schools, we're being brainwashed from the, from the time we, we, we enter grade school. And this is, this, this is what, of course, uh, um, Howard Zinn has been uh, done also in his books on um, uh, people's history of the United States. So you know, I, I do think that there's a difference. I mean, I, I think that what you're, I think that it's a matter of degree, because you know, to a certain extent, all nations present a kind of a nationalistic, you know, version of their history that puts them in a favorable light when they're, you know, and public education is, in a sense, kind of indoctrinating people, you know, into citizenship and into kind of membership in the nation. And to a certain degree, I'm not sure it could be any other way. Um, I think that the difference is, is that while, to me, the difference is between kind of sins of omission, things that you didn't learn, and being taught things that are, act, that are actually false. Yeah, like that the Constitution has God in it. Right. 
I mean, it's one thing that we've kind of, you know, I think that most of what you're talking about are kind of things that are just left out of history and, you know, that just kind of, you know, which creates, you know, this ignorance that then kind of lets people, that then makes it very difficult for people to understand that their government is acting in ways that aren't actually, you know, kind of benevolent and democratic and, you know, makes it very difficult for them to understand, you know, why America's hated throughout the world. But that's quite different than teaching them, you know, again, that something is true that's just not true. Okay. I see your point. Um, this is uh, left out on WRCT. You can give us a call uh, at 412-268-9728. We're talking to Michelle Goldberg, um, who's a writer for Salon and is uh, the author of a new book called Kingdom Coming, The Rise of, the Rise of Christian Nationalism. I have something else uh, to, well, maybe Bob, I, I have something unrelated to this book that I'd like to ask you about, about other articles you've written in Salon. So maybe we should well, let's come back to that in a moment. Yeah. Okay. So on, on this theme of uh, things that are positively false and being advocated, there's a, you have a chapter in here about intelligent design, and that's back in the news uh, again because of what's been happening in Kansas. And right, which a is few, very good news. Which is good news, finally. Well, it also, a little bit, uh, about six what months happening? ago. What is happening? Uh, well, there were the school board members who were behind this kind of push to institute intelligent design creationism into the biology curriculum in Kansas were voted out and okay. so they're now uh, they're now going to revert to sanity at least on that for a little while uh, on this issue but also that happened in Dover and with the last election the right. entire school board was voted out because they were all just stealth candidates so I wonder if you can pick up on that I mean here's a here's an example where not only is a, a flat denial of reality but it's moreover doing it by by adopting the close of, of, of science Right. I mean, well, and that's kind of something that you see throughout the movement. That's really one of the movement's innovations, not just with, um, you know, intelligent design, which is just this kind of charted-up version of creationism, but you also see that with, you know, abstinence education. So it used to be that they said, you know, sex is wrong and sex ed promotes, you know, communism and immorality. And now they have these kind of pseudo-professional organizations that you know, will cloak these, these positions in some kind of veneer of scientific legitimacy. And so what's interesting, I think, is that when you look at, um, when you look at the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute, mm -hmm. which is the home of the kind of intelligent design movement and which kind of purports to be a legitimate, you know, scientific organization, they're actually, um, they're actually very, very thoughtful about what they see as the kind of consequences of what they're trying to do. I mean, what they're trying to do is not just to replace um, Darwinian evolution in science classes or, you know, to kind of teach the controversy, as they say. They're actually quite serious about creating a kind of, you know, and forgive me for sounding pretentious, I'm not sure how else to say it, a kind of epistemological revolution where the way we understand reality will be, um, you know, altered. And so they, you know, there's actually something called the Wedge Document, which was this leaked document that they created for their fundraisers in which they talked about how the target ultimately is not Darwinian evolution. The target is materialistic naturalism. Right. I mean, the target is the idea that we can understand anything about our world without reference to the divine and to revelation. Right. So the, as you put it, I think in your book is a complete attack on the on the very on the Enlightenment going back several hundred years, in which there which is based on this premise that things are knowable by direct evidence and not merely uh, not merely through revelation. But and I think that but part of the problem is that 
you know, because, and I think understandably, you know, most of the media does not have time to kind of delve into the, the background of every one of their sources, and the kind of rules of objectivity mean that, um, that these views are presented as somehow equivalent, you know, so some scientists say evolution is yeah, legitimate, right. and exactly. others say it's not, you know, never mind that you're talking about, you know, one million to one, and that one is almost <laughs> inevitably kind of religiously motivated. Right, exactly. But they, but the thing that's interesting about it is, it's, I, for me anyway, it's one thing to sort of say there are different perspectives on knowledge, or there are different perspectives on what's meaningful to people in the world, and there are religious and artistic perspectives, for example, to be distinguished from scientific or materialistic perspectives. You know, I think most people find that kind of thing normal and benign and, and, and a usual, you know, commonplace, really. But th this is different, right? Because this is an attempt to call these things science, to take on the name of science and to somehow claim that they have, that, it's, that it is science and that science shouldn't be bound up with materialism, which is it's fundamentally what it's all about. Right. Well, one of the really important things that happened yeah. in Kansas before this recent, um, you know, return to sanity was not just it wasn't just the introduction of um, intelligent design. They actually rewrote the science standards to to include the supernat to include supernatural causes in science, which is yeah, I mean, that's, which is the exact contradiction of what science is. Right, but if science starts including you know the supernatural, then <laughs> in a sense you can kind of. I mean, it, then it does bring these theological questions to bear on almost everything. Right. And uh, rob science of, what, of, of any meaning. I mean, then it becomes completely arbitrary, just a matter of, uh, of uh, you know, opinion. And, so, and then that brings us back around to their, their to traditional, especially the religious right, railing against everything being relative and a matter of opinion. And they're just demanding that it's all just a matter of opinion. You think evolution and they think something else, and it's just a matter of opinion. So it's a remarkable, uh, remarkable turn of, of events. It also is amazing how, how the, 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 the right wing has used the, corp the sort of the real powers, the corporations who control the GOP, um, have absolutely no interest in any of these things, other than as a way of mobilizing a base that will vote for them. That's right. Um, well, let me say, I'm not sure. I think, you know, that's the kind of the Tom Frank argument. Uh -huh. And Tom Frank is... He's been so, a guest on our show, by Tom the way. Tom Frank <laughs> is so smart, and I have so much respect for him. Yeah, he's brilliant. But I do, I disagree in that I don't think that it's just a matter of the corporations controlling the GOP and, you know, these kind of benighted Christian foot soldiers doing their bidding and not getting anything in return. Because really? if you look at the structure of the Republican Party, I mean, the Republican Party has really been taken over at the precinct level, you know, the precinct level all the way up to, you know, the kind of state party chairs. It's now kind of... This movement is very much in control of huge parts of the party and, you know, often are running candidates that make the kind of corporate people, you know, to a certain extent they're willing to put aside their differences. But I think that, you know, you're often seeing in many cases the candidates who come out of this movement now are kind of superseding some of the ones who are just there to, you know, serve corporate interests. I don't think that corporate interests are happy about the rise of Ken Blackwell, for example, in Ohio, who is, you know, who was um, 
who beat out two kind of more mainstream mainstream Wall Street Republican types for the gubernatorial nomination there. Right, but it, I mean, I would then argue that it was an unintended effect, right? That I think that the, there is a deliberate exploitation of ignorance by the Republican Party to support uh, positions that are otherwise absolutely untenable. Uh, this is my own opinion. And but and you may be saying that, well, after all, it's going to come back and bite them. And well, they, what I'm saying is that, that I think true. that there are people running the party who are true believers. I think uh -huh. that there's like, you know, there's obviously people like who are cynical, cynical and manipulative, but mm -hmm. I think I think that um, there are also some kind of real fanatics in charge. But but why is it that they that, that they're going against really the real the deepest religious belief of helping the poor, for example? Well, this I mean, is isn't that that the Bible? The most of the Bible is about how you have to help the poor. Well, I would say a couple of things. I mean, first of all, again, I don't see this as a religious movement. I see it as a kind of a nationalist political movement, you know, and. So, you know, there's kind of all kinds of, you know, biblical precepts that they're happy to disregard because it's, you know, it's much more, it's, you know, it's a movement that kind of works along the same lines as all kinds of other, you know, authoritarian populist movements. Um, the other thing I would say is that it's the, what kind of allows them to square the circle, at least in their own mind, is um, the faith-based initiative because what they'll argue is that, government social services actually harm the poor and that real charity should be provided by churches and that conversion, conversion to Christianity needs to be a kind of a key aspect of recovery, say, you know, from drug addiction or prison or unemployment. And so what you're seeing is it's not a cutoff of money for social services. I mean, you're actually seeing billions of dollars being spent, but where is that money going? It's going to, you know, very conservative churches to provide these kind of so-called faith-based initiatives that have, you know, very little oversight and a lot of room for kind of proselytization. Uh, I want to pick up on that in a moment, but we have a caller on the line. I wondered if you'd take the call. Sure. Hello. Yes. Hi there. Um, you know, the the uh, Christian nationalism thing uh, is, is very interesting to me, and I read an article in the New York Times magazine a couple weeks ago by Lori Gould, uh, Goodstein talking about uh, uh, megachurches and uh, talks about Reverend Boyd, an evangelical preacher who got uh, sick of them. And in particular, the uh, breaking point was he visited a, another megachurch and he saw the service finish with God Bless America and a video of fighter jets flying over a hill silhouette with crosses. Yeah, and that, that's, that's, that's pretty par for the course. No, you're kidding. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you go to these churches. I, I should let the caller ask a question, but I can talk more about that later. And then there's one, one other one I saw, this American Madrasis. I think I, I read uh, David Byrne from the Talking Heads as a web journal, and he saw the movie American Madrasis. Madrasis, I may be mispronouncing Madrasis, that. Madrasis, I think. Yes, there you go. And um, at one of the mega churches at the uh, Sunday school services, uh, the pastor instructed the little kids that they should be willing to die for Christ. And in another scene... Oh, I think that he's talking about Jesus Camp. Is that right? He might be, yeah. And then they talk about a cardboard cutout of George Bush. And the kids are told to identify, come forward, and touch his hands. 
And it just seems like this is this very strange mixture of religion with weaponry and killing people, which sounds like it's at the root of uh, most of the bad things that have happened in the last, say, 100 years. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Okay, if you go to the these megachurches, there are these kind of nationalist, I mean, and not all of them, but many of them are these kind of nationalistic pageants. And so, you know, you see often, you know, a kind of American flag, a waving American flag with a cross on it on the huge monitors that they have everywhere. And absolutely, images of battle are not just, they permeate both the language of the sermons. Um, Rod Parsley, who's a real up-and-comer in this movement and kind of probably the most influential megachurch pastor in Ohio, his slogan is lock and load, you know, and he says, you know, man, your battle stations, ready your weapons, lock and load. And, you know, there's these, um, there's these kind of teen evangelical revivals that often start with kind of bringing out real tanks and real guns and, you know, firing blanks into the crowd and having this whole kind of little miniature military um, pageant. It's very, very common. It's kind of the conflation of, you know, America, Christianity, the cross, and the kind of weaponry of war and the, and the you know, what they call spiritual warfare, it's all mixed up into this kind of, to me, pretty toxic brew. Yeah, you wonder, and you wonder why we're invading Iraq. I mean, it's uh, incredible. Well, it's inter- I mean, you really see it in the military, you know. You really see there's been a real um, concerted effort to kind of evangelize <laughs> and Christianize the military. And what's interesting is that when people have tried to resist it, you know, when they try, when there was... Um, the controversy at the Air Force Academy. At the Academy, Academy I knew you were going to mention that, right. Where they were, you know, where, where, you know, professors were basically telling their students, you know, I hope you find Christ by the end of the term. And upperclassmen were proselytizing to the charges that they had authority over. And, I mean, there was just this really clear, you know, atmosphere of religious intimidation. And when there was an attempt to kind of scale that back, you know, something that would seem to be so, um, un- it would seem to me to be so uncontroversial that you would not allow that. You know, an attempt to kind of rectify that seems like it would just be something that most Americans would support. Support. Yeah. You saw such an uproar. Um, you actually had 70 congressmen, you know, sign a letter objecting to well, attempts to rein this in. And actually, guidelines to try to rein this in have now been scrapped, and so this is kind of allowed to go on. Well, Christians are a persecuted minority in this country, as you know. <laughs> and so I think that's a, that's a common theme, isn't it? I mean, very often that that the Christians are persecuted, and they're it's, and that by the by the the liberal the liberal. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was at a conference, you know, in the spring called the War on Christianity. It was actually, I think, where Tom <laughs> DeLay gave gave his last. Um, his last talk before announcing his resignation, and, and he was introduced by Rick Scarborough, who's another kind of up-and-comer, who explained that Tom DeLay's problems, you know, Tom DeLay's legal troubles, is a result of the fact that he loves Jesus too much. <laughs> but, but why do people... Do people go for this? Yeah why, yeah, why do people... I don't understand. Do is it because they want, to, they want to have believe Everyone in the simplistic... Everyone likes to be a victim in some way? Believe the simplistic... Uh, ridiculous things because it makes them feel good? Why well, I would say a couple things. I mean, I think, again, it's really important, I think, to keep in mind this whole alternate reality, this parallel reality. I mean, if this is what you've learned in school, if it's what you hear from your parents, if it's what you hear from, 
your pastor from Fox News, from the radio stations that you listen to, you know, I mean, to the books you read, it kind of creates an almost impenetrable world. And so, you know, there's something kind of Orwellian about it. How do you know that it's all ridiculous? I think that that's part of it. Um, the other part of it, I think, is... And this is something that I think Tom Frank does absolutely hit on, is that people do feel besieged. You know, they do feel that something's wrong, that something, you know, they have this kind of tremendous anxiety. And I think that one thing this movement does is direct that anxiety onto the homosexual agenda or onto the liberal elite. Um, one of the things I think is really important is that, you know, sometimes on the coasts or in the blue states, all this talk about families being under attack or marriage being in trouble sounds, you know, pretty ridiculous. But in the states where this movement is the most powerful, um, marriages are in trouble. You know, the divorce rate is extremely high. Families are falling apart. Um, but only they're not in, falling apart because of the homosexual agenda. Right. It's only in the red states. But, but, the, but um, this movement is giving them an explanation for, you know, terrors that I think are really real. So we're talking to Michelle Goldberg, author of uh, Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism, and you're welcome to call at 412-621-9728 or send electronic mail to bob at leftout.info. So now the, now the hard part, Michelle, which is uh, we have this really a rather oblique picture of attack, attack on the very idea of truth, the political maneuvers that are going on to exploit, uh, I would say, exploit ignorance and exploit certain religious views for political purposes, all of these trends. But the question is, you know, where does it all head and what's happening is, for example, the vote in uh, in Kansas a, a real cause for optimism, or is it just an anomaly? I think it's. I mean, I think it's a cause for optimism, but not a cause. To me, the tricky thing is that I find this movement very alarming, but it's not a juggernaut. It's not unstoppable, and so I think it's important. I think that it's important to maintain a kind of a balance between saying that this is just kind of going to steamroll over us all, but also not to just kind of be complacent and say, oh, well, the pendulum will swing the other way. I mean, the pendulum doesn't swing unless people grab it and pull it. And so, you know, these victories in Dover and in Kansas are, um, are really important, and they show that kind of, you know, the kind of sanity caucus can prevail. But... Um, but there's still so much more work to be done, and the movement and the kind of infrastructure of the movement is not going anywhere. Yeah. And so I, I see it as kind of, I think that these local battles, especially electoral battles, are really in certain ways the most important because, um, you know, court, you know, for a long time liberals have relied on courts to kind of protect a lot of their civil rights. And I understand, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, the courts should be there to protect our civil rights. But the fact is, is that they're not, we can't rely on them anymore because the movement has, is succeeding in packing the courts. And in a certain way, victories that are won in the polls, you know, I write this in my book, are much more durable because, you know, There's electoral politics injury. forces you to get on the ground right. and change people's minds. Right. Well, that's a uh, that's I think a good uh, good note in which to uh, end our discussion today. Um, thank you very much, Michelle. For, oh, do you want me to oh, ask my question? Oh, yes, about, I'm sorry. Uh, is Danny has one more question. Sure, yeah. Go ahead. Um, Excuse me. This was uh, I was uh, reading your I'm a, I'm a salon reader, and I re I've read your columns uh, for a long time now. Um, back uh, right before the 
the Iraq war started, uh, there, there were a lot of protests. In January, mm -hmm. I believe, 2003, there were... There were um, you know, February, yeah. Mm -hmm. February, but yeah. there were there were protests all over the world, and and uh, you covered them for Salon. You went to some of the, I think you went to one in New York, um, and you wrote an article about it. And I was like pulling my hair out when I read that article because you were kind of griping about it, and saying, you know, I talked to some protesters, and they didn't know they they were against this war, but they really didn't know what to do. They didn't know what the answer was. When I asked them what to do about Saddam Hussein, they didn't give me a coherent answer. And I'm just sitting there pulling my hair out like, well, maybe they just think that Bush is a liar. You know, I mean, there's a million reasons. And now they've turned out to be completely right. And so I was, you know, I felt that your coverage of that was, I don't well, know, sure, overly no, critical of these protesters. And I, I, didn't, I didn't think it was really fair. Well, let me, I mean, you know, I wrote a lot of articles about the protest, and some of them were really critical and some of them weren't. Um, my problem with the anti-war movement was not, the anti-war position. It was, um, and again, I'm not, I just don't, I don't doubt what you're saying. I just don't remember the specific article. But I wrote a lot of articles that people were infuriated about um, criticizing the fact that the, the anti-war movement was led by um, International Answer and, um, and also a group that um, is kind of is tied to the Revolutionary Communist Party. So International Answer, you know, you guys know, I'm sure, is a front for the Workers' World Party, and the other group is a front for the International <laughs> Communist Party. And, you know, and these aren't just, you know, I have, you know, kind of red diaper babies in my family, you know, old communists who are part of the party and who, you know, and I love them, and I kind of love uh, that milieu. But we're not even talking about kind of nice old communists. These are people who are actively supportive of you know, the shining path. Yeah, and, okay. Well, that, and, that, that but, was, but, but what percentage just, of that? Okay. The okay. one thing I would say is that, you know, I've written a book now about kind of saying that the Republican Party, by being kind of in bed with people who, you know, for people who espouse kind of the most radical and theocratic and hateful ideas and saying that, even to appear at conferences or even to work with them on political campaigns, even to kind of treat them as respectable members of the, you know, I criticize people throughout the book for, for example, you know, kind of linking arms or cooperating with people who are forthright theocrats. And in a certain sense, I think that if I had, if I kind of then said of the left, um, well, you know, you have to work with people. They're good organizers. It doesn't mean that you espouse everything, you know, everything that they do. I would say, um, yeah. you know, I, I feel like that's hypocritical. I mean, yeah, I see. Okay. That was a, that was a different a different point. Uh, you're, you're, I, I don't have the article and quote in front of me now, so I, I, I apologize for that. But it was the, the thing that it was uh, I was thinking of was where you were criticizing the specific demonstrators you interviewed a bunch of demonstrators, and you didn't feel that their answers were as coherent, uh, presenting a coherent, uh, you know, response. And so you criticized them, but that, that's that's a different thing than what you're defending now. Um, but I guess I'm we're sorry. Near, we're, we're near, near the, the end, end of, of our program. hour. I, so uh, I'm sorry to end on a critical note, but it was great to have you on our program. Oh, well, thanks for having me. No, I would have liked to talk about that more. I mean, because I feel you know there's still all kinds of things to. All right, I'll tell you what. We'll have you back on left out uh, another time. Okay. Well, thanks so much for having me. All righty. Thank you very much for calling in, Michelle. That Bye -bye. was Michelle Goldberg, uh, who is author of a new book, Kingdom Coming: The Rise of Christian Nationalism. We've been talking to her for most of the last hour. Uh, that brings us to the end of our program this week. Thank you to Matt Horniak for for producing. We'll see you in two weeks' time.